Please pray with me. Dear God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. We pray that you will silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may obey your will. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. In the book of Job, we hear the wisdom, ask the beasts and let them teach you, and the birds of the heaven and they will tell you. Our scriptures are filled with owls and hawks and eagles and sparrows and vultures and ravens and even pelicans. There are myriad of birds that carry symbols and ideas to teach us of divine things. When Bill asked me to participate in the Divine or Fantastic Beast series, I said, absolutely, it's wonderful, I'd love to, and give me a bird. It took me a long time of reading through all of the books. In fact, this whole series could be nothing but birds of the Bible, and we still would not exhaust all of the meaning that we have in these rich beasts. But I finally settled on the dove, because doves and pigeons have the largest number of shout-outs throughout Scripture. It's littered. Birds, those doves and pigeons are just throughout. And the doves most importantly appear in all four Gospels in all of the exact same place. And that's very noted, because the Gospels don't always agree on things, but the Gospels agree that Jesus was baptized. And the Gospels all agree that descending from heaven, surprising everyone, was a dove. And so that's what we're going to hear today. I invite you to listen to God's living word and the witness of John the Baptist to Jesus' baptism as recorded in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible translation. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is really greater than me because he existed before me. Even I didn't recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be known to Israel. And John then testified. I saw the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Even I didn't recognize him, but God who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the spirit coming down and remaining is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John said, I have seen and testified that this one is God's son. Here ends our reading. Long ago, I was captivated by a painting by Norman Rockwell, and I found a postcard of it, and I framed it, and I have kept it in my office ever since, and when I say years ago, long before ministry. And over the years, I continually am struck by how necessary it is for me to look at this image and be reminded of how I'm supposed to live my life. As with most Norman Rockwell paintings, you might take a simple glance at the image and think, okay, I got it, it's not that big a deal. This image is of the front steps and the arch entrance of St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York City on Fifth Avenue. It was painted in 1957. There are pedestrians that crowd the street walking in both directions as if you couldn't put another one in there. Their eyes are to the pavement and they're hunched over while the nose of a New York City cab just kind of edges into the scene at the bottom. On the steps is a minister with his arms raised and he's directing a custodian who's on a ladder changing the title of the sermon that's in the church's signage. Everyone, everyone is focused on the task at hand like a busy New York City minute, not wasting a time noticing anyone else or anything. So consider the irony of the scripture passage that Rockwell painted into the bottom of that image. 
I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's Psalm 121. Some of you know it. It is one of my favorite psalms. Now this image has got to be one of Rockwell's more sobering pictures. There's people that they're all detached from one another, hustling towards the next event or retreating from some past encounter. At that moment in time, they don't even appear to be present with themselves in the present. It's as if the present doesn't even seem to exist. But rather than dismiss this picture as depicting just hopelessness, if you look closely, there are perhaps a dozen doves in the high arch of the sculpted entrance to the the sanctuary. It's kind of easy to miss them, but once you notice them, you can't take your eyes off of them. Their their wings are somewhat of the same color as the sculpted uh, granite, but you see them there. It's only the birds of the air who seem to be attuned with their maker, not only lifting their eyes, but lifting their entire being up to God. It's through the birds that Rockwell seems to be whispering to us, pay attention, there's hope. In our human imagination, birds have mediated between the heavens and the earth throughout time. Their freedom to traverse the skies or startle us with their songs literally raise our eyes metaphorically and literally up to the skies. From the hummingbird to the vulture, their ease of flight is with a grace that sometimes masks their strength, but we know it's there. In the world in which we live, we've got trees and shrubs strategically placed amongst the concrete pavement and the buildings of concrete. It dominates our surroundings such that we seem to live in a human manufactured world. But the birds that creep in, they are a continual reminder of a presence that is not of our making. They are a continual reminder of God's presence. All may pass by, all will pass away but God's presence endures forever. Since ancient times, the dove has symbolized the spirit of the divine. The early Israelites imagined it hovering over the waters of creation, pregnant with all of God's possibilities. Scripture tells us that after the rain subsided, Noah relied upon the dove's strength to go out and search for solid ground amidst the flood. And when it returned with the message of land and the end of chaos, It did so by carrying a simple olive leaf. In ancient Israelite worship, doves were the only bird acceptable for sacrifice since they've always represented purity and innocence. And a dove is often depicted as alighting upon Mary at the incarnation of Jesus, again, pregnant with God's possibilities. And I mentioned all the Gospels record that there was a dove present at Jesus' baptism, symbolizing the descent of God's Holy Spirit from heaven. Now, we've seen many pictures of the baptism. Our Western art depicts a very genteel, sanitized image of the tidy banks of the Jordan River, and John the Baptist and Jesus are probably in crisp white linen, and there's this dove lightly descending upon Jesus' shoulder. That's what I always grew up watching. You might have seen something similar. But in reading about doves, ornithologist Sally Roth disabused me of this placid image with let me read her writing. A dove's descent is not slow and gradual, but rather an oh my God moment with a sudden appearance. 
They do not glide in from afar, but with swift maneuverability. And they come in at a high speed, they close their wings and drop like a rock, pulling up at the last instant to flutter to a stop, flaring out their tail and throwing it forward to break. The dove descended. That's what scripture tells us. And descent is a scriptural idiom to indicate a divine, divine, pardon me, divine origin. So now, let's reimagine Jesus' baptism. He's slopping through the mud and the water. He's getting all dirty. And John the Baptist, whom he's approaching, probably smells to high heaven because the guy's never had a bath. And then this dove thunders in from the sky, scaring the, everybody. Jesus' baptism was both very, very earthly and very cosmic. That's the experience that we're supposed to remember. But the Spirit didn't just appear and then vanish. Rather, John the Baptist claims the Spirit remained. And since a bird of flight does not remain, the Gospel writers drive home the point that God's presence is both very startling, but also enduring. In this short narrative, we're to know that the Spirit tethers Jesus' finite mortal existence to his divine origin, and it keeps him always connected to his eternal home. Rather than thinking of baptism in the Spirit as a single event, we are to think of it always as the ongoing, indwelling presence of the Spirit. Now John the Baptist testifies that the Spirit descended from heaven. But the Gospels testify this Spirit did not shield Jesus from adversity. Rather, in the long arc of each gospel, we are to grow to understand that the Spirit is what equipped Jesus to weather the storms of his life. This simple dove symbolized the strength and grace that invested Jesus for the vigorous struggle he encountered each and every day, and for the struggle that would finally take his life. But the Spirit's resilient, and the Spirit always remains. So Jesus, divine and human. Jesus needed to be equipped with the Spirit to weather the storms of his life. But if we listen to common culture today, we might wonder, what storms for those that are heroes? The stars in the workplace or in the public stage are perceived as being able to glide along, creating an illusion that they never encounter failure, they are never losers, they never become disabled, and if they are faced with obstacles, they seem to navigate them without skipping a beat. Social media and our social networks seem to celebrate those who are fonts of limitless energy and productivity. I was always faced with a consultant who could work through long days and then claim to work on those late night flights. There's the student who stays up night after night to get the paper done and study for exam and then be the star on the field, or so we think. And there's the neighbor with the capacity and creativity to take on every volunteer task and their garden's always beautiful. There's this notion that the more we do, the more we can do, and that we're not supposed to stumble. But none of this is true. We're created to be human doing, pardon me, we are created to be human beings, not human doings. And life is messy. There is so little we can control. And it can be heartbreakingly difficult when tragedy strikes out of nowhere. Rising against this illusion that we can be perfect or that bad things won't happen to good people is the lived experience that when failure or trauma happens, 
we do survive, and we survive by becoming resilient. Now, resilience is the current buzzword that's resonating in the halls of elite business schools, college campuses who are trying to take students and make them into real human beings. And it also resonates those of us in real life who have been humbled by life. Sheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer of Facebook, learned more about resilience than she imagined following the sudden death of her husband. In an instant, she became a single parent to their two small children, something she never imagined. And in an instant, she became a widow, something that she hated being called and something that she never imagined. The indomitable Sandberg, who had inspired women to just lean in, as her first book was titled, admits that her husband's death crippled her. In the recently released book entitled Option B, Sandberg recounts her struggles to take a breath, and then another breath, and to wipe away the tears, then the flood of tears that kept going, and also to rebuild. It couples her story with Wharton psychologist Adam Grant's insight on the need for resilience to weather life's traumas. Now, resilience is not something that we're born with or a character trait like optimism. Rather, Sandberg and Grant write, and I quote, resilience is the strength and speed of our response to adversity, and we build it. It's not about having a backbone. It's about strengthening the muscles around our backbone. Coached by Grant through her grief, Sandberg learned resilience is built by the daily habits and the stories that she would tell herself. Sandberg learned not to personalize her husband's death. Of course it wasn't her fault, but she needed to accept that and know that she could not have prevented it. And over time, she had to learn that her grief was not pervasive. It would not affect every single area of her life. And she also needed to learn that the trauma she and her children endured would not be permanent. Her children would grow up to lead full lives, and so would she. Sandberg had to be fully present with all of her emotions, accept each day as it unfolded, and step by step recreate her life. There was no value in clinging to the past or imagining a future in which the pain would all be erased or would never be healed. Resilience for her demanded living in the present. Now she also writes that her grief and her recovery and capacity to create resilience was not solitary. The authors reflect, and again I quote, resilience is not just built in individuals, it's built among individuals. When we build resilience together, we become stronger ourselves and form communities that can overcome obstacles and prevent adversity. Collective resilience requires more than shared hope. It is fueled by shared experiences, shared narratives, and shared power. As Christians, we share common stories of tragedy, and we have hymns of sorrow. They permeate our scripture. Yet we tend to skip over them and just go to those texts that offer nice pleasantries or those nice comforting words. But it was a wise pastor who once reminded me that about a third of the Psalms in his count were voices railing at God saying, how could you let this happen to me, God? Or worse yet, God, where are you? Those are honest questions that we ask and that our Hebrew ancestors always asked. 
So go ahead and ask them. It's healthier for someone in the midst of gut-wrenching trauma to admit that life is hard rather than try to push aside the pain with, and I, I hate saying this, I know that God does, give, does not give me more than I can handle. Whenever I hear that, I have to remind someone that's what we call a little Christian lie. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Life does throw at us all too often more than we can handle. It happens amongst everybody. But by turning to God every day, and particularly in times of trial, we may not find the answer that we want, but we grow to realize that God did not cause the trauma, but just the opposite. God is the one thing that's there with us throughout. God is always present, even when we seem to have lost any hope. Now we weather the storms in life by building what we call spiritual resilience. And listen to this story. At 5 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays in Camp Liberty, Iraq, before the morning run, a group of soldiers meet to pray together. Colonel Mike Lembrick, the U.S.-Iraq chaplain, believes these regular gatherings are essential for soldiers who are separated from family, who work long hours, and are unquestionably living in life-threatening conditions. They build what he calls spiritual resilience, which he defines as, I quote, the ability to exercise your faith on a daily basis so you are able to understand or you are able to integrate the joys and sorrows of each day into your life. And we know through discipline, soldiers build strength physically. So we should not be surprised, rather we should be inspired that it, the ways in which they seek to build spiritual resilience. It does not happen magically. It takes the support of community, devotion to God, and each other. Their lives depend upon being fully present at each moment, and they learn that their lives always need to rely upon God's abiding spirit. So let's return to that Norman Rockwell image that we started off with. It's a crowd of pedestrians in St. Thomas in New York City an attempt to imagine what the scene now looks like in 60 years later. It was painted in 57, so now it's 2017. The minister's probably still wearing the same robe. We've been wearing them for 500 years. It's not going to change. It's probably engaged in the same activity. We still have titles for our sermon. The cab might be a little updated, or more correctly, it might be an Uber. The pedestrians are still very self-absorbed, but they're not staring at the sidewalk. They're staring at their smartphones. We have a nagging concern with being connected all the time, and we behave as if it's our phones that sustain us. If 60 years ago the pedestrians were not fully present in life, we are even more so today. We just seem to be focused on something other than what's all around us. And those phone-obsessed pedestrians probably don't notice the birds. But if they did, they'd probably realize they're not doves. It's New York City. Honestly, they're pigeons. But that doesn't diminish the sacredness because pigeons and doves are of the exact same family. A pigeon just happens to be a little plumper and a lot more prevalent in our lives. And that's a good thing. So if the birds of the air remind us of the enduring connection between heaven and earth, 
And if the pigeons of the city pecking around you murmuring a soft coo, that's a way of them asking you, stop and consider. God's spirit and presence is there with you. So offer a prayer of thanks. Stop worrying about the past or planning the future, but bask in the presence of God and build a little spiritual resilience because we all know one day we will need it. Please pray with me. Dear God, help us lift up our eyes. Remind us where our help comes from. It is you and only you. In this quiet time, tether us again to you through your spirit. God of our lives, keep our going out and our coming in from this time on and forevermore. Amen.